Welcome to the War Daddy Podcast, where we shed new light on battlefields of the past. Hello, hello. My name is Will Kresh, and I'll be your host, or at least the man yell-talking to you about death and destruction for as long as you choose to listen. Uh, this here is the maiden voyage of the War Daddy Podcast, so if this is your first time listening, that's cool, because it's my first time recording. Uh, being my first foray into this particular medium, I appreciate you lending me your ears, and uh, if you want to hear a little more about the man waxing poetic about battle and history and warfare and all the gory details, uh, just stick around after this pilot episode, and I'll give you a little more about myself, my unique family history, uh, where my perspective and obsession with warfare stems from, and a handful of other uh, self-aggrandizing embellishments and fabrications. But since that's not really what you came here to hear about, you can just consider me a student of history in the Dan Carlin sense of the term. Probably not that dissimilar from yourself if you're listening to this. So, without further ado, let's start with a story. Once upon a time, way back in the days of feudal Japan, the year was 1336, the emperor was winning countless battles against rival warring samurai clans and shoguns, and he managed to finally unite the whole island under one imperial flag for the first time in Japanese history. But in a war-centric world like Japan, um, peace did not last long. It wasn't long before he was betrayed by one of his best generals, and a full-scale rebellion broke out. Uh, The tide began to turn against the emperor, and after a series of bloody battles, his imperial forces are decimated, and the emperor found himself outnumbered, trapped and surrounded, holed up in a castle with an army of thousands of enemy samurai poised to land on his shores. At this point, the emperor had no choice but to flee to the mountains, lick his wounds, and try to rally his forces, but the emperor had never retreated before. He believed, probably rightfully so, that if he fled without a fight, His honor would be forever stained, and no man would ever follow him again. So, he sends word to his best and most loyal general in the field, Kunsunoki Masashige. He orders him to marshal what's left of the imperial army, and lift the siege and crush the enemy. Now, Kunsunoki, who is a total badass, as we shall soon see, he knows there isn't much left of the imperial forces. Kunsonoki was in fact the only man to ever beat any of these Ashikaga rebels in the field, and at this point he was down to just his own clansmen, about 50 men, many of which were his own blood relatives. He was actually even suing for peace uh, at the time of these orders were issued, believing that continuing to fight was folly. Now he finds himself looking at clearly suicidal orders from his master. So what's a samurai to do? Well, the way he and his clan chose to carry out these orders would make him legendary to samurais and warriors loyal to the emperor for generations to come. So, with only the handful of warriors he had left to face down an army of thousands, the Ashikaga clan would actually land about 4,000 samurai across the river in an area known as Minotogawa. Kunsonoki assembles his men at dawn the next morning. Strapped in their black lacquered armor, the sun reflecting on their four-foot razor blade sharp katanas, Kunsonoki and his men charged the overwhelming enemy landing forces with a scream of bonsai echoing in the still morning air. Kunsonoki and his clansmen did all they possibly could to unleash hell on their enemy, slashing and hacking in a rage typhoon of gleaming steel and spraying crimson. But it was not long before every last man under Kunsonoki's command was cut to ribbons. Slashed and bleeding from as many as a dozen wounds, Kunsonoki found himself cradled in the arms of his brother amongst the carnage. As his life force drained away, the battle lost, 
Severed pieces of his entire clan lay scattered across the field around him. His brother asked him for his final words. Kunsonoki's reply is now infamous. He said, Would that I had seven more lives to give for the emperor, so that I may go on killing his enemies for seven more lifetimes. Then, it's not like in the cowboy movies where the hero's eyes fix to the sky and he just slowly fades away. Now, not in Japan. Nobody does death like they do in Japan, my friends. Kunsonoki forces his shredded body to its knees and draws his wakasashi, the short companion sword, to his katana, and he shoves the tip of it into his stomach and slits open his belly, spilling his guts on the already blood-soaked grass. Kunsonoki disembowels himself in a final act of loyalty and servitude to his emperor. So, when you think of the crazed, war-mad samurai with fire in his eyes, his blade raised high, sprinting in the jaws of certain death, you are thinking of Kunsonoki Masashige. His actions at the Battle of Minotogawa became a story that all Japanese kids, soldiers, and warriors could recite by heart. Poems and songs were written. Seven lives for the emperor became their battle cry. Kunsonoki became the patron saint of all samurai and a perfect symbol of loyalty and fidelity to the emperor. At the Minotogawa battlefield, a shrine was erected, and here it was believed that the kami, or the souls, of Kunsonoki and his doomed samurai would literally inhabit in the afterlife. They would spend their eternal afterlife here in this physical shrine on earth. The shrine would become a cultural touchstone, later the formal resting place for all Japanese heroic war dead. All those who gave their lives fighting for the emperor, it was believed, would literally join them there. A bereaved mother could go to Minotogawa and pay homage to her heroically fallen son, who would now be a part of this great canon of reverend ghosts. Warriors could aspire to join them in their sainthood if their own act of servitude and self-sacrifice was great enough. It deified these warriors. It was a chance to be worshipped for all eternity. You can still visit this shrine today, and let me tell you, if the Shinto beliefs about the afterlife and the heroic dead are in fact true, that shrine is pretty crowded. And in 1944, the place was absolutely getting packed to the gills. It is this belief and this cultural identity and heritage that allowed outright suicide tactics to take shape. When the imperial Japanese government intertwined the state and the Shinto belief structure, it effectively weaponized a cultural heritage. It made the Japanese people, when backed into a corner, an absolutely terrifying enemy to deal with. And you better believe that every Japanese kamikaze, the suicide pilots that were born out of the final days of World War II, they had all this in their hearts and their minds when they climbed into their zeros and took their one-way trips to eternity. For myself and probably most Westerners of this era, it's just so hard to wrap your mind around this concept. And it wasn't that much easier for the American boys fighting them in the Pacific. To put this in perspective, you have to look at it from the fella on the other side. So let's say you're a Navy man around 18 or 20 from Brooklyn or Idaho or wherever, listening to jazz on the radio, swapping pinups with your pals below deck, and then the sirens begin to wail. You scramble up onto the carrier deck and man your 20mm cannon. Here they come, bogeys on the horizon. Somehow they've slipped through the air screen and are now bearing down on you. Every single gun opens up around you. Your gut tightens, but you do your job, pumping round after round of flak and 50 cal into the sky. Amid the screaming cacophony, you get a bead on one of those little jack bastards, the silhouette rapidly growing in your spiderweb gun sight. He banks, now screaming right down on top of you. At this range, it's like swatting flies with a sledgehammer, but you manage to take a few pieces out of it. He should have pulled up by now, 
He should be dead by now, but he keeps coming, past the point of pulling up, now in his death dive. Your eyes widen. For a second, you're just another stunned bystander, watching in horrified fascination, realizing he's not pulling up. He never had any intention of pulling up. He's coming for you. His homeland is a smoldering ruin. His comrades are corpses littered across the Pacific. He's already dead and he knows it. But with his last earthly breath, he's gonna take you with him. The only way to describe this enemy in a word is alien, like another species, something else. They're not men like us. Are they even men? American boys wanted to finish this goddamn war, get home, get back to playing baseball and marrying their high school sweethearts. Their mothers were praying for them to return home as soon as possible, unscathed, and in time to spend Christmas with the family. But the Japanese kamikaze? He had no intention of ever coming home. His only desire was to score a direct hit on an American aircraft carrier. Their mothers were not praying for their safe return home, but for them to smite their enemy in a final heroic act of self-sacrifice upon the altar of their homeland. The only way you can get to that point, to the suicide tactics like the kamikaze, the only way you can get a nation to willfully participate in suicide attacks on a scale that massive is due to this deep, deep-seated history that basically defines a massive part of their cultural identity. It was ingrained over generations and generations, reinforced by popular culture, and then weaponized by the government. And these kamikaze pilots? They were doing more than just crash diving in the hopes of sinking an American carrier. What they believed they were doing was defeating death itself. They believed in a concept of life through death. It's the idea that if you die gloriously enough, if you commit this ultimate sacrifice, you could achieve immortality. You die so well that you are unkillable. You become an example to your lineage by joining your brethren in Minotogawa, that Japanese version of Valhalla. There's this one great and revealing quote from Japanese Admiral Nagato, who was running the show at this point in time. Quote, In this hopeless situation, survival can be accomplished only by fighting to the last man. Then, even if we lose, posterity will have the heritage of our loyal spirit to inspire them in turn to the defense of our country. What the kamikaze attacks were designed to do was to awaken this divine wind. The name kamikaze means divine wind, and it's taken from the most important miracle in Japanese history. Time for another story. In 1226, the Mongol warlord Kublai Khan, after absolutely annihilating everything from the great dynasties of China to the Muslim Khwarezmian Caliphate, the Khan now had his sights on the island of Japan. If you know anything about the Mongols, you'll know that their destructive power was, was some serious Old Testament wrath of God type shit. And if you don't know much about the Mongols and want some good old nightmare fuel, absolutely check out Dan Carlin's hardcore history called Wrath of Khans. It's a hell of a horror show. Historians say that the Middle East has still not recovered from the epic sack of Baghdad, but that's a whole nother story. Anyway. Suffice it to say, if Kublai Khan landed his fleet of about 3,000 ships and over 100,000 literally bloodthirsty Mongol warriors, and when I say literally bloodthirsty, I know, I know literally gets obnoxious, but I literally mean literally. These fellows were literally known to subside off their horses' blood if they didn't want to waste time in pitching camp and cooking when pressed to mountain attack. So these literally bloodthirsty Mongolian warriors were poised to land on the island of Japan. 
Now, Kublai generally prosecuted a policy of surrender or die, and you know how the Japanese feel about surrender, so let's just say I have some serious doubts that we would be talking about these Japanese as anything but a lost ancient culture today had the Mongolians landed. So, the Mongolian horde takes to the sea, their landing is imminent, when out of nowhere a massive typhoon, a divine wind from heaven, explodes from the sky and sweeps the Mongol invasion forces from the sea. If ever there was a miracle, well, this is one. This parting of the Red Sea in reverse saved Japan, quite literally, from total annihilation. That would probably be enough for most warlords, but not Kublai Khan. He spends the next seven years rebuilding ships and his army and doubles down on fate. This time, it's 4,000 ships and around 140,000 warriors. The next time a landing force ever touched this scale was nearly 700 years later, and that was the D-Day invasions in 1944. So, for a second time, double or nothing, the landing is again imminent. The Japanese can see this massive fleet, ships packed with impending doom just miles from the shore when, boom. Again, another divine wind from heaven strikes down and saves the island of Japan. The storm completely wipes out the invasion fleet again. The only Mongolians to ever touch Japanese soil were the bloated corpses that would wash up on the shore amongst ship wreckage for months afterwards. It's just utterly insane that this happened not once, but twice. This was a biblical-sized, ten plagues of Egypt all at once type moment. It diverted the possible extinction of Japan as we know it. And what more proof as a people do you need to know that God has your back? But this wasn't the last time that Japan would face a moment like this. In 1944, another truly massive enemy force threatened the Japanese homeland. Still currently holding the title as the largest invasion force ever assembled, the American fleet of carriers, battleships, aircrafts, and marines closed in on the Japanese homeland. To understate the military situation, at this point, the war had not exactly gone well for Japan. Once again, they were facing oblivion. The only thing that could save them was another miracle. But this time, it wasn't their empire or their cities or even their people that they could hope to save. The only thing left that they could save would be their cultural identity. This was not a battle they could actually win, but what they could do was attain life through death. To do this, it meant that they could never surrender. For Americans and Westerners, surrender was an option. To the Japanese, surrender was a crime against their own heritage. They had to inspire every last man, woman, and child to go down fighting. Maybe, if they fought this battle with such ferocity and the self-sacrifice was so great, perhaps they could elicit divine help. Perhaps the god of war Hachiman and the combined might of their ancestors would be moved to send them another miracle. Or... Maybe the carnage would be so horrific that these insolent, delicate Americans wouldn't have the stomach to finish the fight. So to do this, to awaken another divine wind, they had to lead by example. And that's how you get the kamikaze. In essence, these suicide pilots would reenact Kunsonoki Masashige's final bonsai charge in a truly modern expression. When you think of kamikaze, you probably, like me, think of that stoic pilot bowing to the rising sun with his white scarf tied over his head, a sip of sake before climbing into his bomb-laden zero, and that, that's all true. But in the death throes of the Imperial Japanese Navy, the coup de grace expression of kamikaze spirit came in the form of the suicide battleship Yamato. I had no idea about this suicide battleship, 
I stumbled on this book called A Glorious Way to Die in a Used Bookstore. Being a sucker for a title like that, I borrowed five bucks from my good buddy and uh, fellow amateur historian, Scott Eisman, and opened it up to find this utterly insane story about the biggest battleship ever built being turned into the biggest kamikaze mission in history. Yamato, it, it means soul of Japan. This is the mystical and ancient name for the Japanese people. It's always interesting to think about what a nation names its greatest flagship. It's kind of an ante, really. When you name your biggest and most formidable ship the ancient mythical name for a collective soul of your country, it's kind of hard to spin a good morale story when it sinks to the bottom. And a name like that has serious power, like the city of Stalingrad. It had far less military significance than, say, Moscow or even Leningrad, but Stalingrad. If Stalin loses Stalingrad, well, that's a pretty serious gut punch, to say the least. You know, it's strange to think about something like the USS Ronald Reagan being sunk in wartime. You could see how that kind of stings pride a little bit. Well, in this way, there could not have been a more appropriately named symbol and vessel with which to launch this final bonsai charge. So, the biggest battleship ever built in the history of battleships, the Yamato, it was an absolute monster. It had nine 18-inch guns that could land shells over 25 miles. The biggest we had were 16-inchers, and there was only six of those per ship. This thing had the thickest armor ever milled. She was even fitted to fire these new Sanshiki beehive shells that were designed to explode in a cloud of shrapnel that would blow whole squadrons of planes out of the sky. But at this point in the war, it was basically obsolete. By attacking via the air at Pearl Harbor, the Japanese had basically undercut their biggest superweapon before it ever had a chance to do its job and get into the fight. The war in the Pacific almost immediately became an air war. Too expensive to lose, the Yamato was relegated to diversion of protective roles, never truly getting a chance to fill her destiny. Fast forward to Okinawa, Japan is desperate to fend off the U.S. invasion fleet. They activate the biggest kamikaze attacks in a vain attempt to keep Yankee boots off of Japanese soil, but it's quickly turning into an utter massacre. The emperor, while being briefed on these suicide attacks, is basically questioning their necessity. Even he is shocked at the dire straits to which his dwindling air warriors have gone to strike effective blows against the enemy, and he asks quite candidly, What about the Navy? What about the Navy? Well, the... Japanese Imperial Navy, once the true pride of all the Japanese fighting forces, at this point more than 80% of it was resting in a tangled wreck at the bottom of the Pacific. But, nonetheless, the admirals felt they had basically been called out by their own living god, the emperor. This became a question of honor. This was not win or go home. This was, you go down swinging bloody goddamn haymakers, or your legacy as warriors is destroyed, and your place in heaven is forfeit. The Yamato became the greatest and most terrible sacrifice on the altar of Japanese pride in a war where the Japanese Bushido warrior ethos had already cost the lives of countless thousands. The fate of this ship was sealed before they ever weighed anchor, dooming the lives of over 3,000 men, all in one fantastic and bloody spectacle. This would be a true suicide mission. Now, I feel like we throw around the term suicide mission all the time but it can really be broken down into a couple of different classes, two of which would be Western and Eastern suicide missions. A Western suicide mission is one like seen in the film Saving Private Ryan, where 
Miller chooses to stick with Ryan and hold the bridge against all odds, we call that a suicide mission. That's how the movie is billed. That's at best a suicide mission, Western style. They had a chance at success. They were praying for or counting on some kind of reinforcement. They had a hope of survival. Look at the Battle of Rourke's Drift, made famous by Michael Caine, Michael Caine, <laughs> in the classic movie Zulu. Michael Caine, that wasn't the best Michael Caine. Eh, okay, I'll take it. Anyway, a force of about 100 British colonials successfully held fast in a brazen last stand against 4,000 Zulu warriors. But they didn't plan on it being their last stand. They hunkered down in the fort, waiting for cavalry to come bail them out. Zulus had a notorious distaste for facing mounted cavalry in the field. So, when the cavalry did show up, they turned out they were low on ammo and basically told the Brits, hell no, we're not staying. So, when they bailed, they left the Brits with no choice but to hold down the fort, because retreating would have led them to wholesale slaughter out in the open. Those meager defenses that they staked their lives behind became their only chance at survival. And to be sure, they never once gave up hope of survival. You can look at the Doolittle Raid, our small yet bold and important response to Pearl Harbor. Sixteen stripped-down B-25s managed to hit Tokyo in an air raid. It was more of a fuck-you statement to Japan than anything, and that gets called a suicide mission all the time. But those boys had parachutes. They had plans to land in China, where they would be rescued by friendly forces. Not that that wasn't an incredibly brave and death-defying mission, but those men were meant to come home. And one of the most famous or infamous suicide missions of all time is the fabled Charge of the Light Brigade. In the Crimean War in the 1870s, the finest cavalry ever mounted, the pride of the British Imperial War Machine, attacked in a suicide charge on well-dug-in Russian artillery that was perched on an elevated position. Lord Tennyson, who was witness to the disaster, wrote the famous poem all about the charge into the valley of death. The poem reached the British public almost before the actual battle was reported, and it proved instrumental in establishing and reinforcing the already revered and feared British cavalier spirit worldwide. On the surface, sure, it looks like a great glorious bonsai charge, but in actuality, it was an extreme breakdown in chain of command. The Light Brigade was never meant to attack that hill. Orders from the generals somehow got horribly miscommunicated. We'll never know exactly what happened because the chap that relayed the orders was cut down almost immediately in the charge, but what they were meant to do was attack some very vulnerable Russian troops who were in the midst of consolidating an allied Turkish gun position. They would have basically been caught with their pants down, especially when facing these fast-moving cavalry. They were perfectly designed for this type of job, but somehow they zigged when they should have zagged and charged directly into the now legendary Valley of Death with nothing but sabers and lances, and they were completely obliterated. It's true enough, they were absurdly brave to do this. They must have known this was a disaster before spurring their horses, but they trusted their generals and they trusted their orders, they believed that this was their mission, and it was a great case when the legendary British stiff upper lip spurred them to carry out orders regardless of the danger. But they were not meant to die. These are examples of Western suicide missions. They don't start out as suicide. That's not the point. You can put it like this. I've been working on this analogy. So a Western suicide mission says, you are hopelessly outnumbered, here is a gun, you have little ammo, but do as much damage as possible, and then afterwards, we will try to get you out alive. We will have some kind of plan, and if it fails, you must do your bloody best to find your own way home. The Eastern suicide mission is more like this. You are hopelessly surrounded. Here is a gun. 
do as much damage as you possibly can. You are the bullet. See, the bullet does not come home. The bullet is the killing instrument. By design, your death is how you will accomplish this mission. The difference is hope. Americans never abandon that last avenue of hope. I go to war, and in the back of my mind, I have to believe that no matter how many of my buddies get killed around me, I have a chance to survive this. The Japanese kamikazes were absolutely resigned to their fate. Their mission was to die. They abandoned all hope of survival. Trying to wrap your brain around that kind of psychology, what was going on in their head and their hearts, it's one of those unanswerable questions. It's also difficult because, you know, you don't tend to get a lot of interviews with successful kamikazes. But what we do have are some really haunting and poignant last letters home. Here's one that really stuck with me. Quote, My greatest regret in life is the failure to call you Chichue, which translates to Reverend Father in the older samurai-style dialect. I regret not having given any demonstration of the true respect which I have always had for you. During my final dive, though you will not hear it, you may be sure that I will be saying Chichue to you and thinking of all you have done for me. We've kind of lost the art of letter writing at this point, at least my generation has, but in reading this letter, this last sentiment that this doomed pilot wanted to express, I can't describe it any other way than purely touching. It's beautiful. It reveals such humanity, such vulnerability. It allows us to break through the wall of that alien viewpoint. Here's another one I love. We are 16 warriors manning the bombers. May our death be as sudden as the shattering of crystal. These were not foaming, rabid fanatics. They weren't drunk or drugged or coerced or forced. They were sober and they were stoic and they were most definitely human. Many of them were university students, the top of their class. The planners of the kamikaze raids would later be accused of sacrificing the nation's educated youth in these hopeless attacks. But it's for damn sure that these boys wanted to go. In fact, they were practically climbing over each other for a chance to be the man in the cockpit. The cadets that were being sent home from the Yamato basically had to be dragged off the ship by their commanders before she set sail on her final voyage. Courage is one of those universal qualities that warriors must exemplify to be effective. The Navy gunner, fending off kamikaze attacks, shows courage when he grits his teeth and stares down the incoming kamikaze, but if the fire gets too hot and he bails and dives into the sea to save himself, he's no less courageous. When out of ammo, surrounded and wounded, he can quit. Surrender is an option. For Japanese soldiers, to surrender was a crime against their cultural identity, as we've mentioned. It was not an option, no matter how hopeless the situation was. And by 1945, the Japanese war machine was a ruined, depleted, shattered beast, but a beast that refused to die. Like some kind of zombie nation, no matter how bludgeoned and beaten to a pulp its warriors, its people were, including the civilians, they were all expected to fight to the last breath. U.S. generals had sent their boys into the meat grinder that was Iwo Jima and Okinawa and Tarawa. The battles, even after they had essentially been won, the marines were still being murdered by hopeless bayonet charges. Swarms of kamikazes were making the decks of U.S. aircraft carriers their funeral pyres. Stories of civilian women leaping off the cliffs with their infant children in their arms rather than be captured. This was some seriously hideous shit. The U.S. put the pedal all the way down. We became flamethrower-wielding monsters. 
only by scorching to death every living creature on these corpse-strewn, bomb-pock-marked islands could they claw closer and closer to the final battle. That would be the Japanese mainland. The bombing raids on the Japanese cities were pushed to the maximum, but even when 100,000 civilians were vaporized in the holocaustic firebombing of Tokyo in one night, the Japanese still showed no sign of surrender. The high-up brass was looking at each other, saying, how the hell are we supposed to finish this war? They knew that the invasion of Japan was inevitable to get the unconditional surrender that was mandated by FDR while he was still alive. They were going to have to invade mainland Japan, and it was going to be a bloody, grinding, yard-by-yard war of extermination in order to claim victory, and all the battles and the suicide tactics before that were proof. Meanwhile, the Japanese were pouring every last bit of effort in the preparation for this final battle. They were chiseling defenses deep into the mountains, arming every man down to the Blind Veterans Association. Every elder, every woman and child was immersed in constant propaganda aimed to turn them into flesh bullets and human bombs. The emperor was calling for the sacrifice of 100 million. The slogan was painted on banners to be hung in the streets of Tokyo in giant black letters proclaiming, a hundred million die together. Everything was leading to this final crescendo, this epic final showdown, the battle for Japan. The Americans were preparing what would be the biggest invasion fleet of all time, more than twice the size of the D-Day invasions. The appropriately named Operation Downfall was calling for a 180-day aerial bombardment that would turn every Japanese city into a blistering hellscape. 180 days. The skies would be filled with B-29s. But no matter how long and complete the bombing was, remember, there were weeks and weeks of bombing leading up to Okinawa and Iwo Jima, and the invaders were still met with ferocious resistance. No matter what, American boys would eventually have to storm those beaches and hack their way all the way to Tokyo. And in doing this, even the most rosy estimates projected over 500,000 casualties in eradicating this fanatical enemy. Not to mention something like 10 million Japanese casualties, many of which would be civilians. This would dwarf what was seen at the D-Day invasions and the fall of Berlin. To put in perspective, Operation Overlord accounted for a total of 425 casualties. But that's on all sides of the fighting, American, English, Canadian, and including the German losses. What this was shaping up to be was an absolutely cataclysmic bloodbath on a scale that the world has never seen. When looking at the level of vicious slaughter that would have consumed the island of Japan, it's honestly a fair question to ask if the Americans and the world would have actually had the stomach to fully prosecute it. And the most important thing that must be kept in mind at all times is that nobody on either side had any idea that the war could just abruptly end in a few short months from now. That notion was unfathomable to everyone on both sides of the fighting. The atomic bombs that smote Hiroshima and Nagasaki did the impossible. They were hailed as thunderbolts from heaven, an utter miracle. Although they were not the miracle that the Japanese were praying for, when looking at what the next stage of this war would entail, perhaps it did just as much to avoid a total Japanese apocalypse. So, we end where we began, at the Battle of Minotogawa. 
by following in the footsteps of Kunsunoki Masashige's example, by becoming this ferocious, unkillable enemy, by turning their sons into suicide bombers, they brought America to its most monstrous form. Ironic in a way, tragic for sure. This will be the first topic of study for the War Daddy podcast. We're going to start out by focusing on the most pure example of this ferocious samurai spirit, the final bonsai charge of the suicide battleship Yamato. We'll get into all the gritty, gory details of the crazy mission that the Yamato was charged to carry out and everything that happened in the epic showdown with the biggest fleet ever assembled. We'll reach back into the history of Bushido and seppuku and Shinto and all the ancient beliefs and battles and fables that allowed Japan to achieve this most terrifying form. We'll peel back the veil on everything kamikaze, their tactics, their mentality, their psychology, the propaganda, their religious motivations, how they came to the decision to actually go forth with these missions, and most of all, we'll try and understand what it takes to carry out a mission that ultimately extinguishes your life. And then we'll take you all the way through the setup, the plan, and the apocalyptic would-be outcome that could have happened had the American war machine executed Operation Downfall, the invasion of Japan. So, if you're into this sort of thing, stay tuned for the next War Daddy podcast, A Glorious Way to Die. My name is Will Kresh. Cheers till next time. Thank you so much for jumping on board with me for this first ever War Daddy podcast. I can only hope that this piqued your appetite and that you'll stick with me as this project evolves. Um, At the top of this pilot, I promised to give you a little bit about myself, so I hope this sheds a little light on the voice that you've been listening to spin yarns about death and destruction for the last 30 minutes or so. So here's me. My name is Will Kresh, and I consider myself in the camp of amateur historian or student of history in the Dan Carlin sense of the word. It's actually from listening to many, many hours of the great and powerful Dan Carlin's Hardcore History podcast that I was inspired to get this little project off the ground. I feel like I've always been obsessed with war and battle and military history and death and destruction, (laughs) and I know this is starting to sound a little bit like a confession, but, um, well, I guess I have my father to thank for this. I was probably swimming in a bit too deep of water for a lad at the age such as I was when my father opened my eyes to some seriously heavy-duty war movies like Platoon and Last of the Mohicans and Glory and Full Metal Jacket. Seeing Full Metal Jacket at age like five, that will leave you some serious psychic scars. But I am grateful for these psychic scars because they instilled me with an utter fascination with film and history and war and where those two things meet. I believe that film has a true power in defining how we understand history. So when a John Wayne movie is the first war movie you're ever exposed to, it tinges how you feel and think about war and battle and what you think it's like, and the same thing certainly goes when it's Stanley Kubrick's lens through which you're viewing all this through. I think the best war movies are the ones that scare you, those that leave an impression when Mogwai cuts out Greyhair's heart and holds it up and that black blood is dripping down his bicep. Oh, God, that image has been seared into my mind since I had memories. I remember being front row, seeing Private Ryan for the first time, feeling the theater shake under my feet as that tiger tank rolls down the road in the finale, my 10-year-old heart racing. All I could think about was what my heart would be doing if I was born in my grandfather's era and had to face down a tiger tank for real. 
seeking that kind of perspective, if I had to live through these types of dire situations in these giant historical moments, I mean, these are men of flesh and blood just like you and I, and with a few wrinkles in circumstance or place of birth or a tear in the space-time continuum, it really becomes one of those infinitely fascinating and impossible-to-answer hypothetical questions. I think I've always had a desire to seek these different perspectives, probably because my family history has provided me with a unique viewpoint by default. So my father's side of the family is Jewish from all over Eastern Europe. They were basically nomadic for generations, but not by choice, but because they were in essence chased across the continent by one form of persecution or another. Fleeing the pogroms out of Russia, some landed in Poland and Hungary and Austria, and in the lead up to World War II, many were rounded up and sent to concentration camps, some meeting their ends in the Lutz ghetto simply because they were Jewish. Those that were able to escape basically scattered. Uh, I have a great uncle Jacques, who became a member of the French resistance in Paris. The ones that managed to make it to America settled in the Bronx, New York. My direct lineage, my father's father, Harvey, he grew up in the Bronx. By all accounts, he was what you'd call a tough Jew, born with a chip on his shoulder. He was used to taking shit for his background, and coming up in a rough neighborhood, this turned him into a bit of a pugilist. He was legendary for opening beer bottles with his front teeth and making sure people didn't step on his toes by busting their nose with his forehead. He was just that kind of fella. By the time World War II rolled around, he joined the Army and became part of the 8th Air Force, the Mighty 8th, who was responsible for crushing Germany in the campaigns of high-altitude bombing with B-17 flying fortresses. They were also known as the Clay Pigeons, being morbidly proud of the massive number of casualties they took, yet still inflicting merciless destruction on the enemy. And I feel like that kind of spoke to Harvey's ethos as a man. So, that's one side of the coin, and on the other, you might say it's the complete opposite. My mother's family comes from Germany. She's what you call the Uberkraut, or at least her forebears were. My grandfather Rolf was born at the base of a little ski mountain in southern Germany, but he left just before he would have inevitably been folded into the Hitler Youth like his classmates that remained. He left and resettled in America, and when the war broke out, since he had some serious skiing skills and spoke the language, he became part of the 10th Mountain Division, a specialized ski trooper unit, the first of its kind, which is actually still in service today, currently deployed fighting in the mountains of Afghanistan. Upon reaching the battlefield in the Italian Alps, he found himself fighting against a mirror image of what he would have become had he stayed in Germany. The man came out of the other side of the war, a bona fide war hero, owner of the Bronze Star. The concept of that is just purely fascinating to me. He was literally able to come face to face on the battlefield with the men that he would have become had he had stayed in Germany. It so easily could have been an iron cross that he earned for killing American boys rather than a Bronze Star that he earned for killing Germans. I keep asking myself how different the story of my family could have been. So, it was the kids of this tough Jew from the Bronx, with family who died in the Holocaust, and the German-turned-American war hero that fell in love and created my sister, my brother, and I. One hell of a brood, if I don't say so myself. I feel like it's just one of those, only in the American melting pot can these kind of ingredients find themselves in the same soup kind of stories. One of the most striking moments for me came when I was in Germany doing research for a screenplay about General Rommel. It turns out that my mother's family tree springs from the town just over the hill from where the Desert Fox was born. 
you know, Rommel, the legendary desert fox of North Africa, Germany's rock star military genius, basically Hannibal reborn. Well, all right, that's a story for another time, and I promise I'll get to that eventually. But anyway, uh, I was staying with my family, you know, the ones who lived there that never did come to America. This is the family that when we dig around in my grandmother's old photo albums at Christmas, we find pictures of our great-great-grandfather with his magnificent curled mustache wearing his Pickelhaube helmet, you know, the classic spiked helmet seen in uh, All Quiet on the Western Front. We have some incredible photos of him fighting in the trenches for the Imperial German Army in the First World War. He was an artilleryman, and there's a few great photos of he and his unit taking one of those stoic team photos in front of their cannon in the center of the village while... That was the village I was standing in. It only made sense that the next generation of men from that village, when called upon by their country, would also fight for the fatherland. Inside the house, I found myself staring at framed photos of the grandparents of the other side of the family tree. And there was one in particular, one of two brothers formally posed in their German uniforms, the eagle clutching the swastika pinned over their hearts. What makes this photo so haunting isn't just their stoic pale blue eyes which look like ice in the aged black and white print, but this was the last time these two brothers ever saw each other. They happened by chance to bump into each other at their final embarkation point before shipping out. They managed to take this last photo and share one more handshake, and then the elder brother headed off to the Russian front. His final letter came home just before the invasion of Stalingrad, and he was never heard from again. The younger brother fought alongside Rommel in North Africa. He was later captured, but managed to walk home from a POW camp in Poland after the war. He was the man whose house I was sleeping in. I look at that photo, and I can't help but think about my own brother. We're the same distance in age, and the family resemblance is strangely undeniable, even across the many branches of the family tree. Trying to understand these men, these warriors, trapped by circumstance— with just a few twists of fate, how easily it could have been my own grandfather, or, with a little imagination, even myself. It's the search for this kind of perspective that has informed all of my script writing, the films I've made, the larger projects I'm currently working on, and it has certainly informed this podcast. I hope that gives you just about enough of me and what I'm all about. And I do hope you'll stick around and stay tuned as this project evolves. I've got plenty more to talk about. So, thank you for listening, ladies and gentlemen, and cheers till next time. <laughs>